Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 16 is what we'll be looking at today. The main idea of these verses is the exhortation to pursue transformation towards sinless perfection. We looked last week at the idea that we have hope of sinless perfection in Jesus Christ. As believers, we are already transformed by Christ. We are being transformed by Him. And we have the hope that when He returns again and we inherit a new heavens and a new earth, we will be made perfect in righteousness, perfect in holiness. Our faith and love will be made absolutely pure. Another way to frame this passage, the main idea of this passage, is Peter's exhorting us to get ready to meet Jesus Christ with hearts that are pure in faith and love. Well, we've been in a series in 2 Peter on Christian growth. And in chapter 3, we've been in a series on Christ's return, and especially the exhortation of the Apostle to grow in a spirit of readiness, a spirit of hastening of Christ's return, a looking forward to His return. And in many ways, today's sermon is the application of the doctrine that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. We have a spirit of readiness For Christ's return, we have a spirit of readiness for the destruction of this world of sin and the corruption that's in it, and a spirit of readiness for the sinless perfection that's coming in a recreated in a new heavens and a new earth where we are given resurrected and glorified bodies. And we need to be growing in the expectation of this, and we need to be growing in a spirit of longing for it, a desire for Christ's return so that these things can come to pass and come true for us in our own life. Well, Peter has walked us very carefully through this idea in chapter 3. If we're going to grow in a spirit of readiness for Christ's return, he's already said in verse 1 through 2 that we must remember that we have peace with God in the gospel. No one is ready for Christ's return until they trust in Christ, until they have the gospel. And that is our foundation. And we saw from verse 1 and 2 that the Father loves us with a propitiating love. He's elected us, He's adopted us, and He has purchased our adoption by the very blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus has taken upon Himself the condemnation that we deserve, the judgment that is due to us, the punishment that's due to our sin. He has clothed us in His own righteousness. And we are called beloved. We are beloved in Jesus Christ. And the Father loves us. And this is the first foundation for this spirit of readiness. The second is is that we've been given sincere minds through regeneration. We have the principle of holiness alive within us. We've been baptized into Jesus Christ, washed and made clean. We are pure in Him, and the Father has promised to give us the kingdom. And we look forward to it with hearts full of faith. This is the foundation of this expectation that we ought to have of Christ's return. And then Peter goes on in verse 3-7 through to teach us that we must put away scoffing of this doctrine. It's easy to scoff the doctrine of Christ's return, but we must trust God in it. We must not belittle this idea that the world will be destroyed and a new world will be made and all things will be lost but our faith and love in Christ. We must not scoff at this. We must trust God's goodness in it. He goes on in verse 8-10 through to tell us that we must gain Christ's perspective on the timing of this event. There's a lot of debate about the timing of Christ's return. And Peter, uh, in a sense, nullifies the whole debate by turning our attention to the fact that what's important about Christ's promise of coming again is his own perspective on it. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He can come back at any moment. 
the point of him speaking to us and promising that he's going to come again soon, that he's going to come again quickly, is that he himself is ready to return. He's ready to come back. He's ready to snatch us and bring us into heaven and bring us into the perfection that he has promised to us. And we must gain this perspective. Christ is ready. He is delaying for our sakes. He's delaying to give us time to get ready. He's delaying for us, for our sakes, to give us the time that we need to seek and to pursue repentance and faith and trust in Him. And yet we cannot presume upon His patience. We must trust Him uh, because He will come again. And when He comes again, He will come like a thief in the night. And when He comes, it will be too late to get ready. It will be too late to respond. And Peter has gone on then in verse 11 through 13 to assure us that we have the hope that when He returns, we will be made sinlessly perfect. And it's in this hope that we are given the strength that we need to pursue uh, the holiness that is demanded of us. And so today he's going to come into verse 14 to 16. He's going to conclude with three practical exhortations, three things to do in light of this confident assurance and this spirit of readiness in Christ's return. Now, Peter is being very practical here, but he's He's really turning his attention to the way that we approach sanctification in life. He's going to give us three directives, three practical applications that will help shape our thinking as we think about Christ's return, as we seek to live a life that is worthy of his return, as we seek to prepare to meet Christ. Three things that we can do that will help us to think about how we can prepare to meet Christ. Well, let's look at the text and see what Peter says here. There's three things here, verse 14 through 16. Here's what he says. This is the Word of God, the holy and inspired Word of God. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Well, we can break what Peter says here down into three sections. In verse 14, he gives us the commandment to be diligent to be found by Christ. That's the first thing that we ought to be doing as we prepare to meet Christ. We ought to be diligent to be found by Him in the purity of holiness, in a purity of love and of faith in Him. In verse 15, he tells us to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. And in verse 15 to 16, he exhorts us to study the Apostle Paul's letters on these matters. What Paul says cautiously, what the scriptures say cautiously, in order to get ready for Christ's return. So it's a very simple outline, it's a very simple passage, but there's a lot of rich things to explore here as we unpack what is written for us. So number one, in verse 14, Peter exhorts us to be diligent to be found by Jesus Christ, holy in faith and love, to be ready to meet Jesus Christ with hearts that are pure in faith and love. Again, look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, I want you to notice the language here. We believe that every word of God is inspired, that these words are the words 
of the living God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out for the Holy Spirit for our instruction and our edification and our salvation. And so notice that Peter roots this exhortation to be diligent, to be found by Christ, to meet Jesus Christ in the hope that we have of transformation that we talked about last week. He refers back to verse 13 when he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, these refers to the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Since you have the hope that you will enter into a new world, a new life, a new body in which it is impossible to sin and there will be no sin available to you, but only righteousness will dwell. Therefore, get ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. It's emphatic here that Peter is rooting uh, this diligent effort that we're to put into to meeting Jesus Christ in the hope that we have of sinlessness. We are not fighting a losing battle. We are fighting a battle that has been won for us, and the promise of its exploits, of its spoils, has already been secured for us in Jesus Christ. God has already promised to you sinless perfection in Jesus Christ. He's already promised you a purity of faith and love forever and ever in eternal life. And therefore, your labor in this life to prepare yourself to meet Christ with a heart full of faith and love, a purity of faith and love, is not in vain. You are fighting this battle and you are striving after these things and you are working for them in the light of the hope of sinless perfection that has been purchased for you and secured for you. And so Peter's very emphatic, beloved, since you are waiting for these, therefore be diligent to be found by him. Diligent means to put in the hard work and the effort and the labor that it takes. It requires thought on your part. It requires you to plan. It requires you to implement and to put into practice. It requires you to do everything that diligence implies. This is not something that we can be lazy about. It's not something that's just going to happen in our life. We must put effort into it. In many ways, what Peter is doing in this place in his epistle is calling back to what he said. You remember in chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 10, where he spoke to us about being diligent in the Christian life and being diligent in pursuing Christ-likeness and pursuing holiness based on the provision that God has supplied for us in Christ. So we're to be diligent on the basis of hope we are to put in effort to prepare ourselves to meet Jesus Christ. And this is what he says in the next place when he uses these words to be diligent, to be found by him. Now, I want to talk about what it means to be found by Christ in just a moment, but let me just briefly say what Peter's referring to here is coming face to face with Jesus in judgment. We must be diligent to be found by Christ. We must be diligent to be judged by him and to be seen by him. And that's the great hope that we have, is that we are going to come face to face with our Savior. But notice the condition that we're to be striving after. We're to be striving after two conditions, to be without spot or blemish on the one hand, and to be at peace on the other. To be without spot or blemish means to be innocent and holy as Christ is innocent and holy this language that Peter is using here is fundamentally rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system where there was the lamb that was without spot or without blemish, a picture of purity, of ritualistic purity, of righteousness. Uh, of course, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of those Old Testament sacrifices where we see Jesus on the cross. As Peter himself says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that he is the lamb who was without spot and blemish. We think of Christ in his innocence. We think of Christ in his sinlessness. 
we think of Christ in his holiness. We are to be without spot and without blemish. And when we think of Christ and we think of his sinlessness and his innocence, of course, it's all rooted in his faith and his love for his Father. And so we don't think of Christ in his sinlessness and his righteousness in a legalistic or a moralistic way. And we don't think of it in a self-righteous or a smug or a self-confident or a self-pleased or aloof sense, which are all the ways that sinners like us are tempted to think about innocence and righteousness. It's the, the way that we as sinners are, are tempted to think about holiness, holier-than-thou kind of attitudes, legalistic, moralistic. No, but in Christ, when we look at his holiness, we see a sacrifice. We see one who loves. We see one who trusts himself in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is exhorting us here to pursue, to be met, with, to see Jesus Christ, to be found by him in innocence, as Christ is innocent, in love, in innocence, in a purity of faith, and in love for Christ, in faith and love for the Father. This phrasing, without spot or blemish, is found also in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, where Paul is speaking about the goal that Jesus Christ has for his church, for his bride, to present her to himself without spot and without blemish or, or, and without wrinkle or any such thing. Again, the picture there is of love. It's rooted in love. It's rooted in the divine love for us. It's rooted in our obligation, therefore, our joyful and willing obligation to return the great love that he's shown us back to him. It's a purity and innocence of faith and of love as expressed in our works in this life. This is what we're to be diligent in, seeking to believe in Jesus Christ, seeking to love Jesus Christ, and to express that faith and love in all that we do in this life. We're to be diligent to be found by him in innocence, in holiness, without spot and without blemish. He says that we're to be diligent to strive to be found by Christ at peace. When he says at peace, he means at peace with God and pursuing peace with men. In the Bible, when we speak about peace with God, we mean the peace that we have with God apart from works, by faith in Christ and His righteousness. As Paul himself says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8-9, through 9, he says, For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And what Paul means there when he says all things, they're all His works, all of His righteousness. You remember Paul was a Pharisee. He had made it his life's work to seek to conform himself, at least outwardly, to the law of God. Or ritualistically, to the law of of God. He says, I count these things as loss. I count them as rubbish. I reject, <clears throat> I renounce my own works in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law through human effort, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends upon faith. We are to be striving to meet Christ and to be found by Him, not trusting in our own works, not trusting in our own righteousness, not trusting in the holiness that we achieve in this life or the pursuit or the progress that we make, but trusting in Jesus Christ alone and relying upon Him and resting in His love for us. We are to be diligent to forsake ourselves and our righteousness and, our, and to be found by Jesus Christ with a purity of trust and love for Him. 
In the Bible, peace with God that's apart from works and by faith in Christ bears the fruit of practical righteousness. It bears the fruit of reconciliation. It bears the fruit of reconciliation with God, a disposition of friendship towards God, a desire to worship Him, love Him, and obey Him. And it bears the fruit of reconciliation, at least pursuing reconciliation with men, seeking peace with all people, seeking to show them the love and the grace that Christ has shown us and a spirit of forgiveness towards them. And this is what Peter's exhorting us to be diligent, to be found before Christ with this holiness and this blamelessness and this spirit of reconciliation and peace with God and pursuing this peace with men. Well, this is what the text says uh, in its basic elements. But think about what Peter means then when he says these things. Think about what it means to be found by Jesus Christ, because this is the crux of what Peter is talking to, about, to, to us about. This is where it really becomes practical and helpful for us. To be found by Jesus Christ, as we said, means to be judged by Him, to come face to face to Him, and to have all of our works exposed to His gaze, to be scrutinized by Jesus Christ, to be seen by Him. Think about what the Bible means when it talks about being judged by Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. And the Bible teaches us that God is the judge of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. God judges us by our works. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, He holds every thought word and deed to account. So when we say works, we mean even our intentions, our thoughts, the words that we use, the things that we say with our mouth, and the things that we do in our life. God is judge, and we will be judged when Christ returns, and we will be judged. Our works will be exposed. Our works will be what is scrutinized and what is under judgment, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. But remember also that the Scriptures teach that God judges the world through Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, verse 22, The Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son. It is with Jesus Christ that we must have to do. It's Christ whom we will stand before and our works will be exposed to. It is His gaze that will see all that we truly are. Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he has fixed a day, as God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed Christ and has proven it by raising him from the dead. That's the message of the gospel, that God is judging the world by Jesus Christ, who was crucified and who now lives again, is reigning and ruling and is going to return soon. It's by Christ that God is going to judge the world and we will be seen and scrutinized by Christ. Now, for some people, this seems to be a point of comfort. And I want to urge upon you the fact that it, it, it ought not to be uh, immediately a point of comfort. Because the idea that God has appointed a man through which he is going to judge the world does not lessen our condemnation, it increases it. Because Jesus Christ is the innocent one. He is the perfect and the sinless man. He is the holy one of God. 
And Jesus Christ has lived a life like your life, like the life that all of us have lived, with every disadvantage. And yet he has remained pure in his faith and his love for his Father as expressed in his righteous life. He is the perfect standard. He is high and he is holy in his innocence and his purity. He is the perfection of mercy and meekness and the righteousness of God. And when we come to stand before him, all of those things that we think that we can make an excuse before him are going to fail as we look at him in the face. Because Jesus Christ was born into abject poverty in this life, and yet he did not abandon his love and his faith for his father or the standard of righteousness. And he was born into a household. His parents were not perfect. And yet he continued to be true to the Lord his God. He was pure in his faith and his love. And his God, by the Spirit, sent him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan in a way far more severe and superior to the way that we have been tempted by Satan in this life. And yet he was pure in his faith and in his love for his Father in his righteous life. And he was opposed by sinners, and he was mistreated, and he was abused. And even though he was innocent, he was counted among transgressors, falsely accused, and condemned to death. And yet he remained true to his Father in the purity of his love and his faith. And so to come before Jesus Christ is to become before the paragon of sinless perfection. And this means for sinners condemnation. But here's where our hope is. You say, well, where's the hope? Where's the comfort in Christ? Well, here's the hope. This one who is sinless in his perfection is therefore perfect in his mercy and in his desire to fulfill his Father's will to save sinners. And today, he calls all people everywhere to put their trust in him and to take refuge in him. And although your faith and your love are not perfect, if you turn from your sin... He will be your perfection for you. He will cover you. He will clothe you. He will be your innocence. He will be your blamelessness. He will clothe you in His righteousness. He will take from you the condemnation that you deserve because He's already paid for it in His own body. And He will clothe you in His righteousness. And so it's a great comfort and a great hope that we think that Christ is going to be our judge. But Christ will judge us then for our faith and our love. To be judged by Christ. For an unbeliever is therefore a terrifying prospect because they have never loved him or trusted in him and they have never loved or trusted in his fathers in his father I'm sorry <clears throat> but they have loved their sin the bible tells us that we come into this world as sinners we are married to our sin we love our sin we trust in ourselves and they will appear before Jesus Christ and he will scrutinize their works and they will be seen for who they really are. Sinners apart from Christ. Without the protection of his righteousness. Or the love of his Father. And as we read in Psalm 139, he will hate them with a perfect hatred. But if we are in Christ, to be judged by Christ is a wonderful privilege for us. It's a reason to glory. It's a reason to be full of joy and praise and thanksgiving. Because we have both loved and trusted in Christ, and we have loved and trusted in the Father, though not perfect. Our love and our trust is in Jesus Christ, and so when we are judged, we will be vindicated for our trust in Him, for our faith in Him. And it will be seen that our love and our trust from Him were a gift itself from God. 
And he will get all of the praise and the glory because it's his sinless righteousness that is our vindication. And it's the will of his father that is our vindication who sent the son for that purpose. And even the faith and the love that we have for him has been formed in us by the powerful work of God. And so when we are judged by Jesus Christ and we are seen for who we really are, sinners who trust in him, it'll be a day of the greatest joy and vindication and glory. Look with me at John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, where Jesus explains himself this judgment, this standard of judgment, and this method of judgment that he uses when we appear to him face to face, and we are seen, and we are known, and we are judged. John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, the scriptures are wonderfully clear for us. They do not hide anything from us. They lay it all out for us to see and to understand. And I can't think of any place in the scriptures that are more clear than John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, on this idea of being judged by Christ. So this is Christ speaking. And here's what he says. And he says, This is the judgment. So if you were wondering how he's going to judge you, here it is. (laughs) This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That's Christ has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. They have hated Christ. Why? Because their works were evil. They have no love or faith for Christ. They have no love or faith for His Father or the God who sent Him. They love and they trust in their works They love and they trust in their sin and in themselves. And they are rejectors of Christ by nature. This is the judgment. For everyone, verse 20, who does wicked things, hates the light, hates Jesus, hates His perfection, His his purity of faith and love, and does not come to the light, do not come to Christ, lest their work should be exposed, lest it should be seen for what they really are. As sin, as a rejection of Christ, as a rejection of a faith and love for Him, and a clinging to sin, which if it were to be exposed, would require them to turn from that sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. But they will not have Him because they hate Him and they love their sin. They have faith and they have love, but it's in themselves, it's in their sin, it's in their own works. And Jesus says they will be judged. They will be seen for who they are. Those who love themselves, those who love their sin. But verse 21, but whoever does what is true, whoever trusts in Christ, whoever has placed their faith in Him and and has sought to love Him, comes to the light. They come to Christ. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that His works, that the works that they do have been carried out in God. That their works, their faith, and their love itself is a gift of God to them. And they will be vindicated on the day of judgment for the work that God Himself has done in them, for the salvation that He has provided for them. It was never about the righteousness and the works and the sins of God's people. It was always about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It was always about, not about their will, it was about the Father's will to save sinners. And what glory and what joy we will experience when Christ sees us for who we really are. And the work of God will be exposed to his face and to his scrutiny. We will be judged by Jesus Christ. 
Think about what it means to be seen by Jesus Christ. It means to come face to face with him. I mean, the second implication of the things that we're talking about is Jesus is going to see us for who we really are. And we are going to know his knowledge of us. We are going to know him as we are fully known. Again, for an unbeliever, this is the worst and most terrifying prospect because they are going to come face to face with the one who has a perfect hatred for them, for their love for sin and their rejection of his father, because they refuse to believe in him, because they refuse to love his father, and he will cast them from his presence, and they will be tormented, and they will weep and gnash their teeth, because they did not trust in the Son of God, and they did not love him. For the believer, again, it means we will be perfected in our faith and in our love for him. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, when we see him face to face, we shall know fully, even as we are known. We will know perfectly Christ's love for us. We will know all that he has done for us, and we will know it perfectly. And what a day that will be. What a day of glory and rejoicing. That will be when we finally come to realize the depth and the fullness of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. This is in many ways what John is talking about in 1 John 3 verse 2 when he says that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will see the perfection of the purity of his love for the Father and therefore his love for us. And we will be made like him, pure in our love for the Father and our love for his people and our love for Christ himself. And so we should get ready to meet him, brothers. We should be diligent to be pursuing a purity of faith in love in all that we do. You see, that's the main idea. Faith in love in all that we do. It's like what John himself here says. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, the unison reading again. Now, little children, abide in Him. We heard from prayer meeting, to abide in Him means to trust in Him. It means to love Him in the light of the hope that we have for Him. The very things that Peter's talking about here. We are to love Him and to trust in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him. It's shame in His coming. But we will stand before Him knowing that our faith was in Him. It was never in our works. It was never in ourselves or in our righteousness. It was always because of who He is and what He has done for us and who He is for us and about His righteousness. And we will not shrink in shame at that day because we have practiced this faith and this love for Him our whole life long, ever since the day that He has regenerated us. And so we're to be pursuing these things. Peter exhorts us, because we have the hope of sinless perfection, because we have this hope of a new heavens and a new earth, because we know that Christ is coming again in judgment, be diligent to be found by Him in holiness and in love, in peace. Trust and love, a purity, a holiness, a holy trust, a holy love. We need to understand how these ideas relate to one another. We fail at this, brothers, every moment. But because of Christ and because of the hope that we have, we keep repenting 
We keep renouncing our own works and trusting in Christ. (laughs) We keep renouncing the things that we love, and we love Christ, and we love all things for Christ's sake in Christ. And so Peter exhorts us to this. Be diligent to be found by him in a purity of faith and love. So that's the first thing that we can do in light of a confident assurance of Christ's return. Secondly, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. We could also frame it like this. Take every opportunity to get ready for Christ. Take every moment in your life that God has granted to you and ever will grant to you to pursue this purity of faith and love, to trust in Christ and to love Him and to express these things in the works that have been uh, through your works that God grants to you. Verse 15, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Again, look at the language here. All the words of God are inspired by God. They come to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. This word count is an accounting term. It means to allocate or to apply to oneself. It means to take to oneself. Well, what's Peter exhorting us to apply to ourselves or to take to ourselves? He's exhorting us to take the patience of the Lord to ourselves and to apply it to ourselves and to count it as something that God has given to us for our well-being and for our benefit. Again, he's exhorting us to trust in the Lord's patience and the Lord's grace. In many ways, this language is a call back to chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so the idea that Peter has here when he speaks about God's patience is the delay of His return. Tangibly, what Peter means when he speaks about the patience of the Lord is every day that Christ does not return. Every moment that you have in your life in this world is the patience of the Lord towards you. And that's a wonderful way to think about the life that we live on the one hand, but there's more here. So to apply or to count the patience of the Lord is to count every day that he's given to you as salvation, as another opportunity to pursue faith and love for him. And it's a wonderful idea that this patience isn't just for us, but it's for our children and for our children's children into the end of the age, until all the elect are gathered in. We're to count every day that we have as a gift from God to pursue faith in Him and to pursue love for Him. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, this is a call of the Gospel. Every moment that you're alive is borrowed time, is the patience of God. It's a, it's a glorious manifestation of His kindness to you and His grace towards you. Because as things stand now, as a sinner outside of Christ, God is right to punish you immediately, today. You deserve death now. But God is patient towards you. He's being gracious towards you. Every moment, every breath that you take, every day that you have to live is a day that God is granting to you to turn to Christ in faith and to learn to love Him and to know what it means to love Him. Come to Christ. Christ promises you that He will save you if you do. If you're in Christ, every day that God grants to us that He doesn't come back is another day to express all the more our faith and our trust and our love for Him. To grow in those things. To find new ways to give expression to them. To be diligent to be finding ways to give expression to them. Out of hearts that are full of faith and love for all that He's done for us. 
Again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, Now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him at shame and shame at His coming. <laughs> what a precious gift it is. When we look and examine our lives, do you look and examine your life? The Scriptures call us to do this. God sees us. One of the reasons I had Psalm 139 read is because it's a beautiful prayer of David. He ends that prayer. He says, Lord, scrutinize me. Judge me. Search my heart. Know me. Show me where I still have to grow. Show me those ways that I'm not trusting in you. Show me those ways that I'm not loving you. And lead me in the way everlasting. There's a desire here in the people of God to be growing in these things, to find places in our life that we can express good works and to be growing in it. When we scrutinize ourselves, when we investigate ourselves, when we look into ourselves, we say to ourselves, are we ready to be found by Christ? Do I want to be found by Him? If, if Christ was going to return at this very moment, would I shrink in shame? Are there areas of my life that I would be embarrassed about? I know that's such, a, that's such a high standard, isn't it? And we all know that it's true. There are areas that we would be embarrassed and ashamed by, and we don't like thinking about it. But in many ways, this is what Peter is calling us to do here. But he's calling us to do, it, to do it with such gracious words and with such joy and such peace, because what we're being called to do is not just the good works themselves. He's not calling us to be Pharisees. He's not calling us to be legalists. He's calling us to trust in Christ and to love Him and to seek to bear the fruits of that trust and love in our life. And so it's a very encouraging thing that he's calling us to here. Remember that the commands of God in the scriptures, brothers, are easy. They are not burdensome. They're not burdensome for us who are in Christ because the Spirit dwells in us, but they're not burdensome anyway. When we, when we come to understand what God is commanding us in the scriptures, it's all fulfilled in love, love for God and love for man. There's nothing more beautiful than what God has commanded. There's nothing more easy than what God has commanded. And I can just give you just a few examples of this. We don't have time to explore the whole Decalogue or all that God has ever commanded in His law. But I mean, what does God command us? Just to throw some out there, He commands to have beautiful marriages. He commands parents to treat their children right and to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What beautiful things. It's, if, if there's any difficulty in it, it's because of sin. But the thing that God commands, the thing that He wills, is beautiful and good. It's not burdensome. God commands us not to murder. He commands us to pursue the flourishing and well-being, not only of ourselves, but of our neighbors. I mean, it's beautiful what He's commanded. God commands rest. I give my beloved sleep, the Lord God says. He teaches us to live regulated lives. It's good what God has commanded. And then we throw into the mix Christian liberty. So that all the things that are indifferent in this life, if we receive them with thanksgiving and prayer, we return them and enjoy them to the glory of God through Jesus Christ and we express our faith in Him as we seek to serve Him by loving Him in all the things that He's given us to enjoy. And I just say it to encourage you, brothers. Count the patience of the Lord to find these ways to continue to express your faith and your love for Him so that you don't shrink back when He returns, but you're trusting in Him. And there's a love that's in you that's genuine and growing because it's spirit wrought. And we praise the Lord. We thank Him. We're full of joy and glory and gladness as we think about these things. Well, then Paul, I'm sorry, Peter finally exhorts us in light of Christ's return not to just get ready to meet Him in judgment 
and to count every moment that we don't meet him in judgment as another opportunity to prepare to meet him in judgment. But number three, we're to study Paul's letters, and in fact, all of scriptures, to know how to get ready to meet Jesus Christ, to be learning and growing in these things. It's a very practical exhortation, but very helpful exhortation to us. Look at verse 15. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So we could add this. Peter exhorts us to study Paul carefully to know how we might get ready for Christ's return. But I want to notice, again, some, some points of interest from the text, things that I think will be encouraging to you. Again, every word of God is inspired. So it's good for us to notice these things. So we want to notice a few things from the text. First, notice that Peter calls Paul beloved. It's a little detail in the text, but we want to pay attention to it. This is amazing because earlier in Peter's life, he had a run-in with Paul. You remember the whole issue in Galatians chapter 2, where Peter was just about to betray the gospel itself, and Paul had to rebuke Peter, and he had to confront him. And there was that discord between these two brothers. But notice here now, at the end of Peter's life, he's clearly found peace with Paul. He calls him our beloved brother, Paul. Because of the patience of God, Peter has pursued repentance. And he has found a way to express his love and his faith in Jesus Christ by finding the repentance that he needed in respect and relationship to his brother Paul. Peter is a living example of the very things he's exhorting to us here. And we notice this in this little detail where he calls Paul beloved. It's very helpful for us to think about that. So I just mentioned it. It's not the main idea, but it's useful to think about. Secondly, Peter calls Paul's writings inspired. And he puts them on the level with all of Scripture. And you can clearly see that in the way that the text is written. To be inspired means to breathe out by God and profitable for godliness. <clears throat> in other words, the words of Paul, just like the words of Peter, just like the words of all of Scripture, are able to make us wise for salvation. They're able to make us and to grow us, to turn us into people who trust in Christ and who love Christ, and to cause us to grow in our trust and our love for Christ. And so Peter's calling us back to the Word. He's calling us especially back to, Peter, uh, to Paul's letters. Well, thirdly, Peter calls his own writings the same as Paul's and all of Scripture. So he's grouping himself and all these men and all of the Scriptures together. And this is worthy to note because all of Scripture has the same message. And that message is this, because Christ is returning to judge the world, because the ascended, victorious Christ is coming again, and we will meet Him and be found by Him and be seen and judged by Him, we must be ready to see Him by living lives of holiness, by living lives that are holy in faith and love. This is the message of Peter. This is the message of Paul. This is the message of all of Scripture. This is the point that he's making. You'll remember just a few excerpts from Paul's letters to clarify this point. Romans chapter 12, in the great book of Romans, after Paul has been explaining the benefits that come to us because of Christ's resurrection, ascension, and soon coming, appeals to us by the mercies of God to become living sacrifices, 
doing what is acceptable to God, which is our reasonable, our spiritual worship, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed, transfigured by the renewal of our minds, and to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the same thing that Peter is writing. He's teaching us, he's exhorting us to pursue holiness. He's teaching, he's, he's teaching us to pursue a holy faith and love in Christ. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14, Paul says, Because our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, because Christ is coming again, and the night is gone, and the day has come, because Christ is victorious and coming again in victory and glory, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Seek a holy trust and love for Christ. That's the message. Turn with me really quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I mean, just an amazing passage. A passage that's easy to overlook or to oversimplify. <laughs> because it's a wonderful thing that Paul is saying here. And this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but what I want to do is demonstrate to you that what Paul writes is the same thing that Peter is writing. He's encouraging us to the same thing. It's the same message. I'm giving you just a few excerpts. I can't read to you the whole Bible and show you in every single place that the whole message of the Bible everywhere is the very message that Peter is giving to us, that God has given us time to be ready to meet Christ in judgment and faith and love. But we have just these few places that I think are really helpful and they stand out. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Peter's his, his explanation here, his argument here, is because all the Old Testament promises and prophecies have been fulfilled already in Christ. Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Pursue holiness. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ, and he means the risen Christ and the returning Christ. What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is a general call to holiness in our life and the relationships that we have. A purity of faith and love for Jesus Christ. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, the resurrected coming Christ. As God said, and then again, this is an aside, but what, Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's going to paraphrase the whole message of the Old Testament. He's going to do it in about a few verses. He's not quoting any particular verse. You can't say, well, he's quoting Exodus or he's quoting this place. He's taking these statements that are repeated again and again and again all over the Old Testament. And because of his vast knowledge of it, he's able to just conglomerate them all into this one statement. And he's framing them as God's promises to us. Look at what he says. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. That's among my people and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, the world, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then Paul says this amazing thing, chapter 7, verse 1, since we have 
these promises. Now, he doesn't just mean, since we have these promises recorded for us in the Old Testament. First of all, notice that Paul frames the Old Testament as a great promise. A promise for holiness. A promise for an exclusive, holy, loving relationship between God's people and the Lord God in faith and trust. That's how we can summarize what he said there. But notice that they're promises of God. The whole Old Testament is promising the people of God this glorious redemption, this glorious relationship with God in holiness. And Paul is making the claim in chapter 7, verse 1, that we have these promises fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. We are the Lord's. The Lord is with us. He has called us sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. We are the temple of the living God. We have these promises. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And remember, brothers, as I say so often to you, in the Bible, the fear of the Lord means trust and love for God. He's calling us to a purity of faith in and love for our God. And we could belabor this point, but I, I won't go through the other passages that I have listed out here. Just these examples, that this message that Peter is pressing upon us, because Christ is coming again, we should be ready to meet him in a purity of faith and love. This is the message of Paul, and this is the message of the whole Bible. And we could go to, the other, we could go to other places. We could go to Abraham. Uh, just really quickly, out of the Old Testament, remember how God dealt with Abraham. God promised Abraham a kingdom. He promised him the kingdom of God. He said, Abraham, go out of the land of your fathers into the land that I will show you. And he called Abraham out of the nations into God's nation. And God appeared to Abraham a second time. And the second time he called the Abraham that he had called, he said to him, I am your shield and your great reward. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven. I'm giving you the kingdom of God. And I am your shield and I am your reward. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And there's more that we can say about that. And then God appears to Abraham a third time. And the third time, God says to Abraham, Abraham whom I've called, Abraham whom I've justified, walk before me and be blameless. And he gives him the covenant of circumcision, a sign that those who are called by God and justified by God are to pursue a putting off of the flesh. They're to pursue sanctification. They're to pursue walking before God and being blameless. And in that same context, he speaks about the king that he's going to raise up for this kingdom. It's the same message. Christ is coming. The kingdom is yours. Be holy. Be pure in your trust in Him. Be pure in your love for Him. But Peter then goes on and he warns us to be careful, to be cautious as we look and study the Scriptures on these things because, verse 16b, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Well, what he means there is that there are people who will misapply these things in the scriptures, and they will twist the scriptures and these things into excuses for sin. <clears throat> and what he's getting at is this. There are things in the Bible, there's things in Paul that are hard to understand and easy to twist. It's easy to miss the point is what Peter's getting at. It's easy to miss the point 
that the whole scriptures are this promise that because Christ has done so much for us, we ought to return our lives to him in faith and love. We owe him all that we are. We owe him our faith. We owe him our love. Or we could put it like this. What Peter is reminding us of is it's easy to read the scriptures and miss the point that this holiness that we're pursuing is rooted in the love that God has for us. And we're returning that love with faith and love for Christ, love for the one who loved us. And we give thanks to God the Holy Spirit who teaches us these things and preserves us from these misunderstandings and these misapplications and these ways of twisting the word. But Peter's calling us here to be careful. Your temptation is to take the message of the word of God, this call to holiness, and turn it into legalistic moralism, to turn it into Pharisaism, to say, God's called me to be holy. Well, and then you turn yourself into this disgusting corruption of holiness because true holiness is rooted in faith for Jesus Christ and love for him and a longing for his appearing and confidence on the day that he returns. It is full of grace. It is full of glory. Well, think about Peter's point here. It's only by the word of God that we grow in this purity of faith and love. All of the scriptures everywhere testify to this point. But we must be careful because it's, it's possible to distort and to twist the truth to our own destruction, <clears throat> to lose the message that the faith and love that we have for Christ is rooted in all that he has done for us. It's rooted in his love for us. It's rooted in his righteousness. It's rooted in his sacrifice. So we've spoken about three things to do in light of Christ's soon return. And the sum of them all is that we're to get ready for Jesus Christ's return by pursuing a purity of faith and love for Christ, a trust in Him and His righteousness, and a love for Him and the fruits of those love. If you're in Christ, Peter tells us, and he explains and he teaches, you do this by being diligent to be ready to meet Him in faith and love. You do this by not wasting any opportunity that He gives you to express your faith and your love in Him. And you do this by studying the Bible to know the truth about His love for you so that you might study the Bible to know how you might trust in Him and love Him more. Very simple. I mean, it's not complicated. But this is what Peter is teaching us. And this is the application to us if we're in Christ, to do these three things. To pursue faith and love in Jesus Christ. A purity in it. A growth in it. If you're outside of Christ, this passage gives you three commandments. And you will be brought into judgment for all three And the first commandment is this, be diligent to be ready to meet Christ in judgment. Number two, do not waste any moment to trust in him and to learn to love him. And number three, study the Bible so that you might know his love for you, so that you might know what it is to trust in him and to love him. But here's your dilemma if you're outside of Christ. These are the commandments of God, and you will be brought into judgment for them. But you don't have any power in yourself to do them. You can't love Christ. You can't trust in Him of your own strength and your own power. But the promise of the Gospel, the promise of the Scriptures, the promise of the Bible, is that Christ has the power to enable you to trust in Him and to love Him. 
And the call of Scripture is to come to Jesus Christ or to say, I should say to you, flee to Jesus Christ and find the faith and love that he freely offers and is able to give to you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Christ is your only hope. He is your only Savior. Trust in him. Flee to him if you're without faith and ask him to give, him, to give you the gift of faith. And he promises that he will do. If you ask, you will receive.